Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly speaker series podcast. I'm Mark Conmey, and this week we're joined by Annette Idler, a visiting scholar at Harvard's Weatherhead Center for International Affairs, Director of Studies at the Changing Character of War Center, and Senior Research Fellow at Oxford University. Today we're discussing Annette's findings from her new book, Borderland Battles, Violence, Crime, and Governance at the Edges of Colombia's War, which resulted from over 600 interviews with people in the border regions along Colombia, Ecuador, and Venezuela. I'm sitting down with Annette after her appearance in the CID Speaker Series at Harvard Kennedy School on February 14, 2020. So I wondered if we could start this off, if you could briefly frame the conflict in Colombia between the government and the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, also known as the FARC, and the key border areas that were relevant to this conflict in your research. Sure, thank you very much. So the Colombian government and the FARC rebel group, they signed a peace deal in 2016 after decades of armed conflict. This peace deal was first rejected in a referendum in October in that year and then passed through Congress in November. 2017, the FARC demobilized, they became a political party, but there are still many dissident fronts that are active, around 2,500 or even more. And there was also a small faction of FARC leaders, including Ivan Marcus, that announced a return to armed activity in August 2019. So just to kind of show where this current situation is. There's also a second rebel group, which is now the largest rebel group, the ELN, that is still active. And there are many other violent non-state groups like the EPL, criminal groups, right-wing groups that are still operating in the territory and that have been operating for decades. That has resulted in recent clashes that led, for example, to the displacement of 230 people in Catatumbo, and we are also seeing the killings of hundreds of social leaders in Colombia. Now, the border areas that I looked at are the areas shared by Colombia and Ecuador and Colombia and Venezuela, and this is because they have been very strategic sites both in the context of the armed conflict for those many different actors, and they're also key corridors of the drug business. So this is where coca is being cultivated and processed from coca into cocaine. They also comprise the main starting points of the international trafficking routes of cocaine towards the markets in the United States and in Europe. As you're doing this research in these areas and conducting these interviews, what are some of the really surprising things or the most surprising thing that you found that might be contrary to widely held beliefs or perceptions. And do you think this is special to Colombia or is it something that's more broadly generalizable? Well, so I think what is most surprising or what people usually don't really think about is that these are not just passive margins. We often tend to think of border areas as a remote periphery, the unruly spaces on which state centers project their power. So it's basically a logic that starts in the state center and then moves towards the periphery. But actually, these very border areas determine the dynamics of the conflict because, as I said, they are strategic sites in the conflict and also for the drug business. So that means they're strategic to gain income to sustain the fighting, income that derives from organized crime, and also they're important to then strike attacks somewhere else in the the country. Also, I think what's important to take into consideration is that, again, moving away from this image of the passive margins, that local communities and those violent onset groups in those remote border areas are actually better in taking advantage of their transnationality than the state, since they cross back and forth, whereas the state is more limited. So there are transnational dynamics going on that are not really captured from a state-centric point of view. And that means that there are transnational communities living in a situation of what I call shadow citizenship, with a sense of belonging to this transnational community, 
and the state is not even aware of it. So these people, they don't feel the sense of belonging to the central state, but really instead to this transnational community. And that is not just the case in Colombia. I mean, I've been doing fieldwork in Myanmar's borderlands as well. There are many parallels. We can also observe similar dynamics in other parts of the world with vulnerable regions, for example, the Somalia-Kenya border areas or the African Great Lakes region as well. Yeah, it was interesting when you were speaking earlier today, you are talking about some of the areas where you see high levels of cooperation and coordination have the lowest levels of violence. So least state control, lowest levels of violence, but doesn't get very much attention because of that fact. Yes, that's true. So we tend to look at, or especially the government perspective, is on large-scale violence. It's when we see combat um, or displacements, but actually in the areas where there's less violence, because it's under complete control of armed actors, this is where the armed actors use the territory to grow, for example, coca, which is then being processed into cocaine, which is an income source. These are also the areas where the armed actors reorganize, perhaps plan attacks in other parts of the country, but they don't receive the same kind of attention. So part of what I'm doing with my work as well with the book is showing that we need to understand those different types of security challenges and not just look at what attracts attention by the media and, and by, the, by the state. Yeah, because what draws attention or views from voters may not be actually the biggest thing that's impacting people that have to live in those areas. I'm also kind of curious to know is how these cross-border ties initially develop. So I was in the military before, and I know like in Afghanistan, for instance, you have this strong ethnic cultural ties between Pashtuns that live in Pakistan and Pashtuns that live in Afghanistan. And so in the case of Colombia, do these ties develop sort of from kinship or ideological similarities or similar cultural ethnic groups, or is it maybe something else? Well, in Colombia, this goes basically back to Gran Colombia. So this was the area between 1819-1831, where basically Colombia, Ecuador, Panama and Venezuela, and also parts of northern Peru, western Guayana and northwestern Brazil, they all formed one country, Gran Colombia. So that means they have those ties that goes back to those times. It was dissolved in 1831 due to the political differences and then basically resulted in the various successor states and Panama was only separated later from Colombia. But it means that there are cultural, religious and linguistic ties. And if we look at it today, there are many families that live on both sides of the borders. There are many marriages across the border. Many people have dual citizenship as well. They have passports from both sides. They're very close ties culturally due to the common history, of course, in that, in that region. And that is then also further promoted, I would say, through the inter-regional migration, cooperation in terms of energy, trade, the economy, and that happens across the border in the Andean region particularly. And we can see how those ties produce similar patterns in different regions. So there's a part in the book where I also talk about the Afghanistan-Pakistan border area, I also talk about the Great Lakes region, and you can see that it's those border areas where the local ties are often very closely knit, whereas the national level manifests a discrepancy in terms of how they react to those local ties. And this is what produces these dynamics locally. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit easier for uh, politicians and diplomats to get together and, and figure out a new border, but it's not so easy to just change everyone's identity in those, in those regions. Right, yes. You mentioned during your talk that groups sort of often compete for control or even cooperate in a lot of cases in these spaces. And are we talking about competition between state and non-state actors or between non-state actors of different types, such as organizations that may have differing political ideologies or even criminal enterprises that might have a profit motive? Or what's kind of happening in this when you talk about competition in these spaces? 
Well, it's both, right? It's both competition between state and non-state actors and also competition among several violent non-state actors and also um, cooperation among them. But the scholarship in general tends to prioritize interactions that involve state actors. So there's a tendency to basically look at what happens if state forces fight guerrilla groups or rebel groups in insurgency. What are the different kinds of interactions that exist? And what I'm doing with the book is I shift the focus deliberately to non-state actors. So I mostly talk about what happens when non-state actors, violent non-state actors, when they fight each other, but also when they cooperate with each other. Because there are many parts, many regions, where the clashes and the cooperation among those non-state actors affect the local population more, or at least as much as the clashes with state actors. Just consider again the case that I mentioned before, the recent clashes between the EPL and the ELM. So these are both two non-state actors, and that led to the displacement of 213 people. So if we ignore those dynamics, we don't really understand what it means for local people to live in that context. And the other part is that if we look at the the cooperation, we really understand how people have to navigate their everyday lives in such a context. So often the state is hardly present. There might be some presence through border officials, migrant officials, maybe some police presence or military presence. But ultimately, it depends on how what kind of configuration the non-state actors have. So that's why I identify three types of challenges that result from the different types of interactions. The first one is enmity, which is when the non-state actors clash with each other. The second one is rivalry, which is when those actors have short-term arrangements. They're short-term cooperation, which means they can have quickly shifting alliances that quickly also break down again. And the third one is what I call friendship, which is those regions where we don't really see violence, because they actually have tacit agreements of non-aggression. They've kind of find a way of sharing territory with each other without fighting each other. So that means each of those challenges has distinct repercussions on the security of civilians. So that's a way of showing that shifting the focus from prioritizing the state to prioritizing the focus on those non-state actors gives us a very different perspective on what's happening to those local communities. So you were talking briefly about how they start to form these relationships with civilians in the areas where they operate. And you even mentioned that in some cases they assume governance roles. How does that develop? Are they filling a vacuum in governance? Are they displacing the legitimate government through coercion? Or are there some cases where they're even just maybe a bit more competent at providing services or providing justice in some sense, and then they displace the government that way? Well, there are, of course, different degrees of governance, right? And it doesn't happen in the same way everywhere. In some cases, it's really just crude power, right? The armed actors arrives and imposes their form of order. But in other cases, we see what I call shadow citizenship. So this is in regions where historically the area was abandoned or neglected by the central state. There never has been a strong state government presence that would be perceived to be legitimate. So there, it's the armed actor that has a mutually reinforcing relationship with the local communities, the citizenry. So it's almost like the social contract where the governance agent is not the state, but it's the the armed actor. And what happens there is that the the armed actor provides services in some areas, and that's particularly the guerrilla groups, the FARC. It's very holistic, which ranges from providing health, building roads, but also solving disputes among neighbors, and then the local population, they would respect them and would also see them, acknowledge them as the local authority. In other areas, it's more limited, and that is particularly the case with the, more, with the paramilitary groups, where they were the providers, or still are the providers of security and justice, but they will no longer or not necessarily also provide 
other types of, of governance functions. But, for example, one problem that we can see now with the peace deal is that in many regions the FARC have historically provided these governance functions, which led to the emergence of this shadow citizenship, and the state now has not stepped in to fill the vacuum. So there's now more uncertainty for the local people, because it's not even clear who is now providing the governance that used to be provided by the FARC. So that means that, paradox in those areas, it's not a linear transition from violence to safety, but it's actually non-linear where people can feel less safe in peace than during armed conflict because they lack this governance provider now. What is the purpose of establishing this relationship in the first place where they are governing or they have this dynamic with the civilians? Are they sort of looking for active support or they're just kind of hoping for people to passively accept their presence or what exactly are they getting out of this if they're going to be essentially governing for free? Well, it's a mix. In some areas, it's they're seeking active support. In others, it's more passive. But of course, they seek the support of the local population to have the well, the support base, right? Ultimately, there is still an ideologically driven organization, and they try to change the situation in the country. And of course, having farmers who are abandoned by the state helps them to basically show why this is what they're what they're striving for. So on the one hand, they want to have the support to make the case for why there needs to be a change at the national level. But then, of course, also strategically, they need to have territorial control. They need to be able to operate there. And it's much easier to do that if you have the support by the local population than if you have to invest in violence, if you have to invest in basically oppressing the local population. So thinking long term, it's much more cost effective to be able to draw on that support in a in quote, peaceful way rather than having to fight against the civilians all the time. What we often see is a change over time where an armed actor would be very violent when it arrives in a certain territory and then after some while the violence basically decreases because it becomes more stable, there's some sort of equilibrium. But in many of those areas, as I said, they have been present for decades. So it has been something over time where they've developed a more or less a trust relationship between the armed actors and the local communities, and this is where it's hard for the state to then come in and be perceived to be legitimate. I was wondering, you mentioned these organizations need to operate in these areas, and I was wondering if you could perhaps characterize a bit what makes the border area special, as opposed to just a place where there's not a lot of state control, because obviously there's some differences, and it makes these places preferable for these types of organizations to act in these locations. Yes. So, of course, we see many of those patterns in in generally remote areas and uh, in areas where there's weak state governance. But the border areas are unique because of their specific characteristics. So, first of all, these are spaces that are very prone to impunity. We often see in vulnerable regions, which means regions where the state capacities are weak, that there's a mismatch of the security and justice systems across the border. So, the border acts as a filter mechanism whereby violent non-state actors can easily cross back and forth, engage in violence and cross-border attacks, and then withdraw again, whereby the law enforcement authorities are stuck at the borderline, so to say. If they don't have proper intelligence exchange, cooperation on both sides, that results in impunity, which these groups can use. So the border acts as a facilitator, and that is very much driven by the transnationality of those spaces. 
Another factor is also the mismatch of the economic systems or even just the diverging economic systems because that increases the incentives to engage in illicit cross-border activities. So if armed actors operate in that area, it's much easier for them to draw on transnational organized crime as an income source, which again, by definition, is transnational. So it's the involvement in smuggling and trafficking of arms, of drugs, of human beings that is used as an income source to sustain fighting elsewhere. So yes, of course, we see the different security challenges in many different parts of conflict-affected or generally unstable regions, but border areas are unique in the sense in that they provide these spaces due to the transnationality that facilitate impunity and therefore facilitate violence, and that also increase the profits that those groups can gain from different forms of organized crime. So when these organizations are operating in these areas, I know like in military terms, they're kind of broken down, at least how I learned it, into sort of like a guerrilla force, which carries out violent attacks, and underground, which would carry out the more covert activities like intelligence or spreading propaganda, and an auxiliary, which is like the logistical support base. How do these different groups within the larger organization sort of use and operate in these areas in their own individual ways? Well, to some extent, they are all present in those border areas. So what you mentioned, the different types, right, within the organization. But I would say that there's one particularity in in border areas. The guerrillas typically send the financing fronts to those border areas. So this was the case both with the FARC and also the ELN. So that means that these fronts don't necessarily have members that are fighting, but they are really in charge of striking business deals. So, for example, I talked to ex-combatants who were involved in business deals across the border to negotiate with others, with traffickers, with mafias, price for weapons that they would obtain. They need to make sure that they are able to sell the drugs. And some of them, they meet in kind of narco business hubs. So these are centers, it can be either towns or more rural places, where they know they're going to meet leaders of other groups to engage in spot sales or barter agreements. It's even a little bit like... It's a little bit mundane sounding if it weren't like drugs and guns and those types of things. I mean, it's as any other business would operate. That's the same with those supply chains in a way, right? It's a supply chain. We engage in the different steps. And of course, across the border, you have particularly business deals because you will get chemical precursors from across the border because they might be cheaper there. The gasoline, for example, that is used to process the coca leaves into cocaine is usually also imported, so to say, from across the border. And the same with the arms trafficking, right? So you have that as a very important responsibility within the organization that is done at the border area. So I've been kind of bombarding you with questions now for a while, and I wanted to know, is there anything else that you'd like to comment or share with us before we wrap things up? Yeah, I think I just wanted to highlight three things that I think are important to keep in mind also for the current situation, and all of them result from my from my research. The first one is the non-linear nature of the changing security landscape. So looking at what has happened with all those reconfigurations and the different patterns of the interactions shows that even if there's a peace deal, it's very likely that there are still these three types of security challenges that I mentioned, because the actor that demobilizes, in this case in Colombia, the FARC, is basically only replaced by another actor. So we need to think about, in transitions from war to peace, we need to think about those different reconfigurations and how they are used by the armed actors. The three challenges being sort of the the conflict, rivalry, and friendship sorts of interactions they can have. Yes, so that in enmity there are armed clashes that result in violence. In rivalry there are quickly shifting alliances that would use more selective violence but erode the social fabric. And that in friendship, we might not necessarily see the violence because the armed groups do not fight each other, but actually we see shadow citizenship emerging. 
And it's very likely that even if one armed actor demobilizes in the context of a multi-party conflict, where you have several different armed groups, not just one, that will still be the case despite the demobilization. The second point that I wanted to make is that we need to look at the regional context. And of course, I'm doing that by looking at three different countries that are sharing those borders. But of course, it's also broader where political developments in the neighboring countries also have an impact. And that's what we see right now with the Venezuela crisis that has an impact on the peace deal implementation in Colombia. So in order to solve those issues in border areas, it's not enough if one country, like the Colombian government, is responding to that. It needs to be a regional approach that involves all the countries that share the border areas. And then the final point that I wanted to just highlight is the role of development and of the importance of investing in development in those marginalized regions. Because ultimately, it is about a lack of road infrastructure, of electricity, of job opportunities. And I can give you just three examples on that. The reason why many local farmers are involved in the coca cultivation is because they don't have any roads that they would be able to use to bring other products like cacao, coffee, bananas to the markets. So if they cultivate coca, they know that there will be people coming to pick up the coca from their farms. They don't need the roads to get anywhere. The reason why many of them also cultivate coca is because they don't have electricity. Without electricity, they cannot cool their products that might go to waste if they don't have that. And then another example is that I observed cases where villages that didn't have a school bus were the villages where children were recruited very easily. So it shows that there is also, of course, a need for political will of governments to invest in their border areas just as much as they do in other parts of the countries. Thanks again to Annette for taking the time to talk with us. And you can find more information about Annette's work in her book, Borderland Battles, Violence, Crime, and Governance at the Edges of Columbia's War, or by visiting her website, AnnetteIdler.com. You can also learn more about the Center for International Development at cid.harvard.edu, where you can learn more about CID's research, events, and upcoming speaker series lectures. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back again next week.